Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and hey, it is uh, June 1st, and June 1st always, for me, marks the beginning of, of June. That's <laughs> what I always think about. I'm here in studio with Dr. Peter Kapsner, and we are very excited to talk to our friend Jay Warner Wallace. He, as you know, is uh, not only a regular on the show, but a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective. He's a very uh, sought-after national speaker and best-selling author. Always glad to have him on. Jim, welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. It's the first day of June. Yeah, very astute of you. Yeah. <laughs> you can't slip anything past this critical analysis, yeah. can you? I know. Yeah. yeah. Most people think it's the start of summer, but you know. Yeah. Well, it is the start of summer. I was just in Colorado yesterday for a summit worldview conference, and the students there are doing great. And it uh, was a beautiful day. And I thought, wow, you know, I guess summer is already here because that season has already started up there. So yeah, glad to do that. we're yeah. very serious about our summer here in Minnesota. Oh, I can imagine yeah. you are. I've been there in the winter, so I know, I know. exactly. I know. Yeah. So it's <laughs> always like. it's always fun when Pete and I can gang up on you. So uh, here you are. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Yeah, I'm ready. One of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, is exactly now the uh, discussion that everyone's having about this shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and I would love to get your response to the school shootings as a police officer and a homicide detective. And, well, and as a Christian, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think that it is. It is. You know, there's going. There's a solution probably moving forward, right? But there, every solution is, is less than perfect because we're living in a less than perfect, you know, fallen world. So we have a tendency to think, well, we could if we just did this, 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 and this. We would solve all the problems. We wouldn't have this. Um, we're not going to solve the nature of humans. So that's always the problem. And I think that 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 the, as we go forward and we look at, well, what are some of the possible solutions? And I'm looking at this both from a Christian perspective and from a you know a law enforcement perspective. I mean, I, I want to be able to paint a solution that is the most effective solution I can paint. But that means I'd have to have a palette that has every color on it. Um, and what I find is that uh, depending on what – everything's been politicized to the point where uh, you might say, well, we've got three, these three colors, but they're seen as either one side of the political aisle or the other. So, so you'll typically see that one side will argue it's, it's, a, it's an issue that has to do with the guns and the availability of guns. Of course, that's, that's part of it, and they'll, they'll suggest ways of limiting the availability of guns. The other side will typically focus on, well, no, it's actually a, an issue of mental health and, and perhaps facility um, uh, security and things like this. Well, well, look, I think you, you need every single paint on the palette to paint the solution. And so I, you, you kind of end up sp- kind of splitting the baby here in the sense that I'm, I, I'm going to paint from all those colors. I think it's not an either or; it's a both and. And there is some moderation on both sides. So I mean, I think some of the solutions that I would look as a, as a cop, I, I'm relatively conservative when it comes to guns. I own guns, and I, but I also want there to be limits on who gets guns. I mean, it's just I think all of us would say there's somebody you have in mind that you would say that person should not have a gun. So the question then becomes. How can we moderate um, a view that allows us to put certain restrictions and at the same time um, allows enough freedom and also addresses issues that deal with mental health? And and also specifically to each shooting, we have to kind of debrief each shooting and see what went wrong, 
uh, what 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 is and it's an, both and it's there's going to be an entire spectrum of of issues that we have to address. So when I write about these things publicly, I typically find that I, I anger both sides because I hold a view that's relatively moderate in the middle. You know, I do think that we have to look at some point and ask ourselves the questions. You know, how do we, how does somebody who now, if you notice this, after every shooting, they'll talk about the shooter and they'll say, well, we knew this about him and this was kind of odd about him and that was kind of, and, and suddenly uh, there are 15 or 16 things about the shooter that you realize, wow, that should have been a red flag and, and nobody caught it. Well, how do we do a better job of catching those kinds of things to make sure that those kinds of folks don't end up with weapons? That's, I think, a reasonable approach. Does not mean I'm going to outlaw, you know, certain weapons for everybody, but it means I'm going to have a stricter or uh, to have a path that would allow us at least to look at the red flags. So it, I'll tell you this: every time we have a shooting afterwards, they seem to be obvious to everyone. Why aren't they obvious before? Hmm. Now, of course, here's the problem with that: as I even as I say that, I can see the potential for abuse, right? Because in order to kind of dial down on what it is that might be a red flag. You're going to have to, you know, the same way after 9-11, we suddenly were much more restrictive about communications and monitoring certain communications. And a number of uh, individual freedoms were sacrificed because we were trying to deal with a threat that we didn't know where it was coming from. We weren't quite sure the depth of where it was coming from. So I think there's, there's a balance here. We have to strike a balance. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of because we're so politicized on this issue that each side comes to the, to the painting with just half a palette of solutions. Because they feel like the other side of the palette, well, that's that's what the other side politically wants. So therefore, I won't even consider any version of that those colors. I'm only going to paint with the colors that we think our side of the political aisle will paint with. When in fact, you got to have every color on your palette to paint the, the solution here. Mm-hmm. That's a great observation, uh, Jim. I really appreciate your perspective. You're, you're making sense, and there you go, making sense. Uh, but let's talk about the human free will. Obviously, a very important aspect of this whole. A situation in Texas. Well, I, this is this is one of the problems is that that that, that freedoms um, come with great risks and 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 great duties. And if you're not in a culture that understands, look, we've it's been often said that that this is the kind of country, and the founders talked about this that requires a um, a, a religious kind of worldview that 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 is self-moderating, that is self-limiting, that is, and we're losing that right. So we, we don't have the kinds of restraints. Also, what I see is that when I look at, read afterwards, when friends and people who are around shooters like this will often say they saw certain things that didn't even strike them as odd anymore because we've moved so far away from a Christian worldview that we don't like have anything to measure our behaviors against. You know, it's it's not like we can say, well, that wasn't very Christ-like when no one knows what Christ-like would even look like anymore, right? So, yeah. so if the culture moves away from a, um, um, a rather um, uh, objective standard of what righteousness looks like, well, then a lot, you know, all kinds of crazy things happen. People will say things, and no one reports this. Well, because people are seeing that kind of stuff all the time on social media, and this has become the norm. And because it's become the norm, we, it, it doesn't even send up a red flag anymore. So I think there are some things we need to look at that, that deal with freedoms. And also remember that you know a lot of this is is I often this is this would be tragic enough if it was just a shooting in which officers responded and everything went perfectly in terms of the police response, 
and but it's, but still people died. You, you'd you'd say that was terrible enough, but there was always two dimensions to this. This was the same that same was true in Parkland shooting uh, in Florida years ago, where you, you it was not just a criticism of well why are guns available to begin with? That was part of the criticism you heard, but you also heard well why was the police response the way it was? Why was it? it I, mean, I wrote an article back then. I've reposted it this week on our we have a website for police officers called the Thin Blue Life. And I've, I've, I posted several articles there two weeks in the last two weeks, and sure enough, then we have this shooting, and these things look prophetic, but they're not prophetic. They're just simply, this is the nature of the culture in which we're living right now, and and we're going to be talking about these kinds of events going forward. A, a lot, a lot of the reason for that is because we have a, a, a tremendous social contagion which is available to us through social media, right? Where where it wasn't, you know, a few days after the Buffalo shooting, we have this shooting. I, I suspect we got to be have our, our, our awareness really heightened right now because with all of this internet buzz about this shooting, someone's watching this right now and thinking, well, I can do that too. And so I, I think because of the, of the information age in which we live, this is even going to be more of a challenge going forward. Jim, when you talk about the help that's needed and, and some of the interceding in, in these situations, can we, to what degree, can we trust or look towards the politicians? to create some sort of legislation to help? Because I admit I was slightly frustrated. I don't know if it was last week, I suppose, when Governor Abbott was giving his address and he was going sort of through the regular script that, that politicians do, talking about uh, we're going to look into it, we're going to figure out what's going to happen, we're going to make it better. And then, of course, he was interrupted by Beto O'Rourke, who he's running against yeah, uh, the, yeah, this, this fall and winter. And it just seemed like political theater as opposed to authentic attempts to help. And maybe I'm overly cynical, but I'm just curious your perspective on to what degree can we look towards the politicians to help in these situations, or do we have to start doing something different? Well, I think you're you're right. It has become political theater, and that's that's why I say we 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 have the, the solutions are, are going to be a a complex, uh, interconnected uh, set of solutions from both sides of the political aisle. And if we are limiting ourselves to just what we think will get us elected on one side or the other, the talking points, the, the, the party platforms for each side, then we never really are addressing, addressing the issue. We're just kind of really using issues to amplify our positions on one side or the other. And I'm tired of it. I'm sure you're tired of it, too. What I do know is this. In terms of rapid response, just like the officers who responded to this shooting, the, the minute you move from one decision maker to multiple decision makers, you slow down the process. So when you first responding, you're the first officer there. Um, we, we, our city here in Los Angeles County, this is also true, I think, in the entire state of Texas. Now, why this didn't work out, we'll eventually find out why. But when the first officers arrive, we have been trained for rapid deployments. We know that, hey, this is an active shooter scenario. We're not going to be able to wait. Um, if I'm the first person there, not in some cities, like they'll be in two-man cars. So the first car to arrive will have two officers. That'll be enough to do the entry. They're just going to basically gear up and rush in. And we have trained to do that in a way that hopefully is as tactically sound as you can be with two officers that don't necessarily probably have all the equipment they would like. But even in our agency back in the day, we would have you know one one car in the um, in the the beat would have the uh, shield available. Uh, we, we, everyone was issued a helmet. We we had enough material to be able to make an entry. But if you only have one or two officers making the decision, you can make it pretty fast. If I have to consult with four more, it's going to slow it down. If I have to wait to see what the county response might be, well, now I'm 30 minutes in. Hmm. If I've got to wait and see what, you know, like uh, in this case, they used as Border Patrol agents because they had a tactical team. Well, now we're 45 minutes into the game. So so there's the problem. You have to, you have to and this is the same as, as true in the larger solution making. Anytime we involve um, the government to do what communities used to do or what families used to do, 
we've increased the number of decision makers and it slows down the process. And it also, it's less contextual to your immediate situation. Because I guarantee you, whatever the state of Texas decides going forward may not be the perfect fit for Uvalde going, going forward, because that's a different kind of community. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing. So I think what happens here is we have to, that if you keep it, you, you want you as the decision maker in your family, you, you, in a marriage, the, the husband or wife make a decision for their family. That's a much more efficient way of planning than it is to say, well, I'm going to, commute, I'm going to consult the city council first. Or I'm going to consult the county you know, legislature, or I'm going to go through the state legislature, or I'm going to go through the federal government. Well, you're just slowing down the process, and you're getting solutions that don't necessarily fit your individual need. So I think that, that my hesitation in all this, and even in terms of planning, as I see the you – know, one of the reasons why you, you see it becomes political theater is because – there is, uh, especially in the information age, you got to be careful not to give too many quick answers. Like I saw today, that now they're saying, well, you know, it looks like maybe the back door wasn't propped open, uh, maybe it was closed but didn't lock. I mean, this this story is going to change on this over and over again because we haven't done a formal investigation of any of this yet under one investigative uh, agency, under one investigator or team, and so we're going to get all kinds of different answers because everyone wants to be the first to break the story, and we're in an information age. So I always expect that whatever you're hearing in the first couple of days, probably not true. Probably some truth in it, but probably not entirely true because it, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. And it's not because we're, as an agency, the police department is trying to delay. It's just that we know any mistaken information we give you is going to be used against us. So we'd rather just wait and give it to you when we know it's not mistaken. But that might take a week and a half, mm. two weeks. And that's when you're going to be complaining that they're not forthcoming. So so I, I get it. This is the challenge that all of us face doing this kind of work. But I'm at the point right now where we're only, you know, how many days behind this? I think we have to be patient and, and, and we're, you're going to get all kinds of, now the story is about the story that was wrong yesterday. That's the story today. So, so this is going to go on for a few days until we finally there will be a report in which we can really say here's the timeline because I've heard like four different versions of the timeline so far. So those are the kinds of things we have to be patient. And because that's the way this works, um, I think if we can handle it at the local level, you handle it at the local level. You don't go above that. All right. We'll be right back with Jay Warner Wallace as we continue to discuss uh, guns and the shooting that happened in Texas and lots more. We'll be right back. afternoon, and I am uh, delighted that Dr. Peter Kapsner is here as well. We're talking about um, the freedoms we have in the in our in our country to have a firearm. But then all of a sudden, uh, when <clears throat> people get firearms that are mentally ill and they've got sin in their life, and they go and do very harmful things, uh, Jim has got a great tweet on the thinbluelife.com. He said, as a Christian detective, I understand the need to freely love those who are struggling with mental illness and the responsibility we have to protect society from harm. Uh, Jim, when we talk about gun ownership, I was just talking to Peter during the break. I said, why is that such a big deal when there's 300 million guns in the U.S.? I can get a small suitcase of cash and just go buy a gun today, can I? I don't need to go through the process of owning one. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I think that you're right. I mean, there's there's already guns on out there that are not unless you can uh, be sure you could secure every one of these guns that's already been out there. And I, and I think this is where we get into these all or nothing kind of scenarios. Look, I I think this is where we have to we're going to weigh two things on the spectrum: our freedoms and then our responsibilities. Every freedom comes with a burden, a burden of responsibility. And to say we have freedoms without responsibilities is ridiculous. But to say we have responsibilities and have no freedoms is is is, is we, we don't live in that kind of a country. And, and every time I hear someone compare America to other countries that don't have the kinds of liberties that we have, um, I, I just don't think that they understand what this is based on. Like the history of our country is such that the Second Amendment is there really as a way to secure our, our ability to defend ourselves from oppressive governments. From the, from the potential that a government could restrict our liberties. And so we're never looking at it in terms of, well, what are we fighting against? I mean, I don't need an AR-15 to, 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 to protect myself from my neighbor as much as I might need it to protect myself from a military regime. And so this is the kind of thinking that goes into this, right? Now, I would say, though, as somebody who's a gun owner, that because I, the freedom of having guns is, is the kind of the substructure of other freedoms, I, I know it comes with responsibilities. So and I, I know five friends who don't think there should be no restrictions at all. In other words, they, this should be an absolute – I think there are some things we have to ask, and here, here are the difficult questions. I think the first one is, who should be disqualified from gun ownership? Mm-hmm. That's really a big deal. I mean, it's going to be based probably – look, everyone agrees that probably some people – for example, people who have been convicted of prior violent criminal behavior, I don't know many people who would say they, they, they should have access to guns. Most would say, but here's what gets trickier. What about mental illness? Well, who gets to say what's mentally ill? Who gets to say what would categorize you as having the kind of mental illness? But that's where it gets trickier. That's just an open question that we have got to start to wrestle with. Who should be disqualified? And then what forms of, of gun security are, are, are going to be required? Um, you often will hear cases where somebody has used their parents' gun to do a shooting like this. Mm-hmm. How, how much responsibility are we going to uh, uh, hold for the consequences uh, related to parents who allow their kids to get guns? I mean, these are simple kind of law enforcement questions that we're going to have to start to wrestle with. And again, that's the, and I know as I say this, that people on one side of the political aisle or the other, for where I stand, are going to be either for or against it, not so much because it makes common sense or not so much because it might be effective, but because it begins to step on the toes of our political ideas, of our political identities, and then we are just unwilling to listen to the other side. And so I think that's so it's, for me, it's about consequences. It's about who gets to own a gun to begin with, and it's about what forms of securities for guns we ought to uh, at least require or encourage. And so I'm, I'm again, when you say things like common sense gun restrictions or gun laws, because that term has been co-opted politically. It's like as soon as you say something like that, the discussion seems to shut down. Right. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that the most conservative cops I know do not believe that everyone should have a gun. As a matter of fact, they would like all the quote-unquote good guys to have guns and all the quote-unquote bad guys not to have guns. So the question then becomes, well, how do we define those terms? Jim, who's a good guy and who's a bad guy? Yeah, yeah and I think that's so important because I, I saw some numbers, and, and I was just out uh, from Scotland these last few weeks, and I know that they when they talk about the United States, they puzzle over the fact that we would have guns at all in the United States. And I think after the Dumbledore shooting that happened, in school a few years back, they just took all of the guns from everybody. There's there's literally no gun issue in Scotland. But on the flip side, uh, the United States has such a massive population. It's something like only, it's less than one-tenth of one percent uh, do something catastrophic with their gun on some level. So it's such a minuscule part of the population, but it's so it has such an outsized impact. So 
Uh, do you see a common sense, like one or two really critical things that need to be done at this point uh, besides just taking guns from everybody? Well, okay, so I think that we have to address the issue of um, who gets who get who who is going to be able to get a gun. Now, this is going to this is going to this is where it gets tricky, because that's really an issue of our freedoms and responsibilities related to people who are mentally ill or the people who have certain prior predispositions. Uh, like, well, how how did the last shooter get a gun on his 18th birthday? He's able to walk in and get two guns. Now, I think most law enforcement officials, if they had some idea of this guy's background, the kinds of statements he had made on social media, the kinds of statements he had made to friends online, the kind of pictures that we now see him posting where he's holding dead cats, things like this, I think we might have said, oh, that that seems a little bit trouble. Maybe we shouldn't have this guy come out on his 18th birthday the minute he's first available to get two AR-15s. Maybe we shouldn't let him have that. I don't know that that would be like overly restrictive for us to ask that question. Just should someone like this uh, get a gun? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. So I, the, the trick is, how do we craft laws that um, allow us to do to restrict that kind of thing without being so overly restrictive that they can be weaponized against just average citizens who want to own guns? Look, I mean, it's interesting to me that there are countries all around the world that are free countries that are closely aligned with America, and really trust that their freedom is secured by America, a country that has this view of gun ownership. You know, it's, it's, it'd be much harder to, to have a, for a standing army to invade the United States, a, a land of gun owners, than it would be for them to invade Scotland. And so it seems that there's, there's, there, freedom is not free, right? I mean, free, freedom requires, but freedom comes with responsibilities. So I'm, I'm in favor of both. I'm in favor of both the freedoms and the responsibilities that come with those freedoms. So that and there's the balance that's always going to be part of the debate. But what I see right now is there's no debate here. There's either people who say it's all about responsibilities and or it's all about freedoms. Like nobody wants to cross over and connect these two dots because it's a political issue. And so I think that you have to kind of see that there's some, going to be some compromise here. And 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 I don't know how I, at this point to be honest, guys, I'm not even sure how we would navigate the compromise. Like I think we're so polarized. I don't even. I know that when I make these kinds of statements online, I'm just a nail looking for a hammer because it. it someone's going to going to disagree with me on either one edge of the political spectrum or the other, and I'm I'm actually probably you know, I I, I know I'm going I'm to offend both the people who I would agree with politically and the people who I would disagree with politically. You can't you can't please anyone. So good, Jim. Uh, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I would love to talk a little bit about uh, your book, A Person of Interest why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible. I, I read the book, and it in, gave me an opportunity to crawl around in your brain for a while. And I got to tell you, that is, that is an interesting place to live for about 15 hours. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. That's terrible. I'm not yeah. sure I want to talk about oh, that. Oh, it's fascinating. And uh, Jim is nice enough to offer us five copies of his books uh, to give out. So that's going to be one of the perks in the next 30 minutes. If you want to get in on that drawing, all you have to do is text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. And you just type four letters, just B-O-O-K. No emojis, no exclamation marks, <laughs> no quotations, nothing. Just the word book. Again, 877-933-2484. Jay Warner Wallace is our guest. He is a featured uh, Dateline cold case homicide detective. He's a wildly popular national speaker and best-selling author. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Um, if you are, I just lost my notes. Ah, there we go. If you are wondering, uh, well, what can I do to help increase my my confidence when I'm speaking to people who are skeptics or people who are maybe hostile, uh, and, and you want to read a book and gain some intellectual understanding and credibility about Christianity, I have to tell you, Jim Wallace's book, Person of Interest, it's a winner. Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Uh, I went through it, and it was a fun, fun read. At times, it was really challenging. He's got 400 original illustrations in it. Those are all fascinating, and uh, I can't I can't say enough. It was a great read, Peter. So by illustrations, do you mean he drew pictures of stuff? He has diagrams? Yeah, he, he has, diagrams. like, Venn diagrams? Yeah, he's and an like artist. Flow charts and stuff? So, yeah. And they're 400 original in yeah, this. Yeah, so what do you do? <laughs> not 400 original things, not in my lifetime, I don't think. That's, yeah. But we are talking during the break that, that I think there's a need for um, for in-depth critical analysis. I know that we want to make our faith accessible in ways, but it needs to be um, off of a foundation of stuff that has depth and substance. And, and Jim's book clearly has this. So it's not the, you're not going to pick it up and read it in, in a month, right? You're, you're going to need to spend some time yeah, with this Yeah, you spend book. some time with it. I had to anyway, but... When you think about Jesus from events that leading up to his death, and then you know what we learned about him after, um, it's it's just a wonderful study, and it's all contained in one book. It's a it's a great it's a great read. Yeah, and he's on the line right now, and he's listening to Should us we talk about it. Well, and, yeah, and it's his know, book after all. Well, and you're funny. You're you're talking about this book because I'm listening to you, and, I, and I'm always trying to think. You know, how do we make complex ideas accessible? And and I do worry sometimes that you know that we are uh, as a church. Um, we are not. It, isn't, it strikes me. I want to say something. I, I think I've said it to you before, Bill. But maybe I'm being controversial when I say it. That I worry that we are not as um, rigorously intellectual as we could be as a group in general. Now, I, here's why I say that. Uh, we, the, the 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 gate that opens the door into the church has become uh, mostly experience, right? Like you've had some experience that confirmed for you that Christianity is true. And it's not as though you had to actually look at a claim and figure out, is it, did the resurrection really occur? Like, very few of us take the time to even think, well, what is the evidence for the resurrection? How would I make a case for this? And why should I believe this is true versus any other version of theism or any other version of spirituality? Uh, a lot of times, what the reason when I ask people, why are you a Christian? They'll say, it's because I was either raised in the church, I was raised that way, or I've had some kind of an experience. I prayed for something that I received. You know, it's and, and my, my Mormon friends will say the exact same thing, though. For what That's why they're Mormons. They were raised in the Lord, or they, were, uh, they had an experience that confirmed for them that Joseph Smith's a prophet of God, and the Book of Mormon is true. And so because our way in to the family is often by through some experience, um, we, we don't apply the same kind of intellectual rigor to what it is we believe about Christianity or believe about. As a matter of fact, if you look at the polls, the vast majority of people who claim to be Christians don't know much about their Christian faith. Don't even know how they would not forget about how they defend it. They're not even sure what the claims are related to the substitutionary atonement or the deity of Christ or the triune nature of God or any of these things. As a matter of fact, a lot of young Christians deny all those basic tenets that are in the creeds. They would deny those claims because they, they don't, or they at least would not be familiar with them. They wouldn't affirm them. So, so I think that part of it is like you know, you're writing books. And I'm like, how do I make this accessible even to the church? 
when the church is not in that, it's not, it's not, it's not finding itself typically reading books that that make a case, right? This is the Christian apologetics is a very small niche of of books you could read, and and so I'm always trying to find ways to make them uh, accessible by by analogizing them to crime stories, to to investigative stories. That hey, if you if you watch Dateline, you'll you'll probably figure out how you could apply that same kind of thinking to this 2,000-year-old event uh, called the resurrection. That's what we're trying to do in these books. Yeah, and Jim, I think maybe people, I know that I failed to appreciate for quite some time that we've been in about a 30-year season in the institutional church where the primary um, maybe motivation and teaching of pastors, and, and as one who teaches in seminary, I've seen it around the country, that we wanted to attract people or an attractional model of church, meaning that we want to get as many people into the doors as we possibly can on the Sunday morning. And that's true whether you're a large or small church. It's not a bashing of the megachurch or, or anything like that. It just means that most pastors have been trained for 30 years to do things to get people in the door through experience over these last 30 years, believing then that we'll grow in-depth, rigorous, um, character-driven kinds of disciples. But it seems like there's been a lot of attention on the attractional part of it, and and uh, and using the numbers and the money that comes from that, but maybe less so, would you say, on sort of the, some of the character development? Yeah, and I think that this, as we talk about young Christians, it's going to be important for us to to teach young Christians some simple, basic principles of logic and and, and reasoning, right? That that we can apply um, to the Christian worldview because it it, it it actually holds up to this kind of scrutiny, but then also it can learn how to think, so we can apply these to other uh, aspects of of reality. I mean, I can't tell you. Um, so and I know that you, you, this is anecdotal, purely anecdotal, but I, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. You, Twitter is such a vile place that you end up having to block half the bots and all the other felt that is on, on Twitter. But what I do see of the Christians who follow me and comment on Twitter is that we seem to be a group that is quick to jump on conspiracy theories, quick to jump on on things that if you knew, okay, let's let, let apply these reasonable reasoning principles. You could kind of reason through this if you if you kind of think clearly about how this is these dots are connected. But we don't push ourselves to do that. It seems like now that's purely anecdotal based on what I'm seeing online, but. I, I do see it a lot, and I'm thinking, okay, this doesn't. And this is what the atheists who I encounter are constantly complaining about. You Christians, you're you're not rational. You're anti-science. You're well. I don't think we're anti-science. As a matter of fact, that in the book you saw, probably saw the chapter I did on science. It's the Christian worldview that gave birth to the natural sciences as we know them today, and the uh, the vast majority of scientists in the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th century were Christians who came out of guess what, the modern university created by Christians also. So it's not as though, I mean, we have got a very rich intellectual history. But what I see now is the perception about us being anti-intellectual and anti-science is sometimes confirmed by the silly things we'll say online, right? Like we don't seem to, to push ourselves. I, I've, I know folks who are Christ followers who could probably make a better case for what uh, show they should watch on Netflix tomorrow night than they can for the deity of Christ. And that, I think that's because we're caught up in the culture, right? Um, and this has always been the case. Look, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that we're in that much of a unique. The information age has made it worse. But the reason why John and Peter write in their letters about how important it is to be in the world but not of the world is because it was a challenge for first century Christians too. Um, and so here we are 2,000 years later with the same struggles. But I, so I'm trying to write books that I hope are creative. So there's lots of apologetics books out there. I'm trying to write the ones that, um, like if I get an idea for a book, I'm not really concerned that anybody else is going to write it because I'm going to write it from an investigative perspective that I just don't think anybody else 
you know, every one of us has got a life experience that we can tap into to write a book. And if we do that, then we're going to write the book that only we could write. And, and that's what we're trying to do with these books. Mm-hmm. Jim, the last time you were on, you said something which was a little bit of a shocker. I don't know if you meant to rattle some cages, but you followed it up with a great explanation by what you meant. And I hope I heard this right, or, and I hope I'm going to repeat it correctly, but you said something to this effect. Your personal testimony isn't important. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I remember this too, Bill. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, 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 here's what I mean by that. Uh, um, the word testimony has kind of been co-opted, right, by, yeah. by the culture we're in which we're in. And when we talk about testimony, what we're typically talking about is we're talking about our uh, um, moment of transformation, our personal experience within the worldview, within the Christian worldview. And what we're not talking about is testimony the way it was used in the book of Acts, which is about the testimony there. It's, it's about the eyewitness testimony, it's direct evidence, the eyewitness testimony of those people who actually saw the risen Christ. So you won't find them for example, uh, talking much about their own transformation or what Jesus means to them. Uh, what you see instead is that uh, I saw this with my own eyes. The Old Testament predicted X, Y, and Z, and then I saw X, Y, and Z. I was there. I saw. I touched him. I, I, I saw what he did. That kind of testimony is called direct evidence. It's a very evidential approach to making a claim. And what I see us doing is we are very quick to say, well, let me show you what the experiences I've had and why I love Jesus. Well, okay, but what separates that from Mormonism then? Because I'm, I've got, you know, I've got six brothers and sisters who were all raised LDS. They, they, could, they could easily do this for Mormonism. That doesn't make Mormonism true. As a matter of fact, most of us would say, no, that, that we don't think Mormonism is true as Christians. Yet they take the exact same approach of personal testimony that we would take. So I think we can do better than that. But by the way, they cannot take an evidential view and make a case from the evidence because it, it's not supported by the evidence. But your view, Christian, is supported by the evidence. So you could do both. You could talk about your own personal tra- transformational experience, but also talk about the evidence and why the resurrection actually occurred. So I, it's, it's not an either or, but it's it's a both and. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I'm more interested when people ask you, what's your t- share your testimony with me. I will always say, you know, to be honest, my testimony doesn't matter and neither does yours. What matters is, is this true? Now, at some point, I'm going to share with you how I determined it was true, which is my personal testimony. But the focus for me is more on, is it true? Because everyone, every believer, Buddhist, Muslim, Mormon, Christian, Jew, we all have some experience we could talk about as our personal testimony. But it doesn't mean that all these worldviews are true. We've got to do a little bit better than that. Jim, what do you say to the person that would say, well, I'm more of a science guy? Well, I, I I get it, but what do you what do you mean by being more of a science guy? So I think that that there's a difference between a, a scientific fact and then the inference that we make from scientific facts. I I think that science is incredibly helpful for us. I wrote a whole book on this called God's Crime Scene, where we looked at the science of what's going on in the universe. How did the universe get here? Why does it appear to be fine tuned? How does life originate in the universe? Why does it appear to be designed? What do we how do we arrive at consciousness in a purely material universe? And how do we have free agency within the constructs of our material brain. And these are our scientific questions we try to answer with neuroscience and with cosmology and astrophysics and biology. And it turns out we can collect data from all of those disciplines. But then we've got to make an inference from the data. So the science doesn't, doesn't say anything. Scientists say things. The science is, is, is up, to, up to, to us to make inferences. And I think the very same scientific data that many would use to argue for a, a non a, a universe in which there is no God, I think we can use the exact same scientific data and show how this actually argues that God must exist. 
So I'm not afraid of looking at the scientific data. As a matter of fact, Antony Flew, one of the best-known uh, um, atheists of the 20th century, uh, in his last decade of life, uh, changed his mind. He was so well-known. He was a foundational atheist in the atheist community, but he became a theist at the end because he was convinced by the science of DNA. That data, he didn't think it could be reconciled. He's right. It cannot be reconciled under a purely naturalistic, atheistic worldview. All information comes from mind, from intelligence. And once he realized that there was information in the genome, he realized there's got to be a mind that transcends biology that is the author of that information. So what is he doing? He's taking the scientific data, and he's now making a proper inference from the data. So if you're saying, well, I'm not afraid of, of, of science, no, I'm not. I actually love looking at science, but I, I'm careful about the kind of inferences that I make. Mm-hmm. We have five copies of Jim's book for a drawing. If you'd like to get in on that drawing, uh, text the word book to 877-933-2484. The book is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Again, text the word book, 877 933 2484. We'll be right back with Jay Warner Wallace. To the show, Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Always glad to have him on. And his um, his most recent book, his Person of Interest: Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Five copies to give out. Get in on the drawing. Text the word book eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Peter, you had a great thought during the break. I'd love for you to ask Jim that question. Yeah, Jim, you were talking a bit about the idea of the importance of personal testimony and uh, and its contrast that we have to ask the question: Is it true? Is there still, though, a, a role to play that if something is true, it should be making some kind of difference in our life, meaning that we have a testimony to give that this truth has now made a difference? Because it seems to me that some people resist Christianity because they see Christians who maybe are hypocritical or it just really hasn't made much of a difference. Well, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, this is what James talks about, right, in his book, that, 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 that there should be a consequence for believing something is true. But here's my, my, my biggest difficulty with that, and, and this is, I'll go back to the example of my family that were all raised LDS. If you moved into a neighborhood that you're the first person in the neighborhood or you're new to the neighborhood, one of the first people who's going to knock on your door with a gift bags, basket is going to be the Mormon family. If you think you're going to outdo the Mormon families in your neighborhood, <laughs> uh, you're not. They're going to perform much better. Why would you be surprised that in a worldview, a theistic worldview that requires good behavior for your salvation, that you'd find better behavior? Of course you will. And and so you could argue that, hey, by adopting that view, it's had – there's incredible – as a matter of fact, that's what they would typically say. Now, I realize this is changing. Really, when once Mitt Romney was running for president, I saw a shift in the way that Mormons even talked about themselves. They, they really put, positioned themselves more as another denomination of Christianity right now, rather than holding to some of the core claims that, that, that Mormons used to hold to for many, many years. And one of the core claims they would always hold to is that how you know something is true is by its fruit. And they would argue that their fruit is better than anyone else's fruit. 
So I think there's a, a balance to be weighed here. Sometimes you, you, you behave a certain way. And I would, I would actually argue that if you're behaving a certain way because you believe there's a, a reward in it for you, that that actually it's not – it's only when you behave that way when you think that this, the debt's already been paid. Christianity has the ability to produce truly moral behavior in people because it's not a requirement for salvation. It is the consequence of something we've been gifted, but the debt's already been paid by us. We're not trying to earn our way. And this is why when you ask a Christian about their salvation, most of us have confidence because we've given our – we're trusting Christ for our salvation. Whereas in a, in a works-based system like Mormonism, you'll say, well, do you know for sure you're going to be uh, exalted as a god in, in celestial kingdom? Well, I hope so. But they don't have that kind of confidence that you would have because it's work-based, and they don't know if that whatever they're doing is going to measure up. And, and that's the difference, right? So I'm always a little bit more hesitant to say, okay, I get it. Um, you're going to see hypocrisy in Christianity. You're going to see a kind of a cheap theism in which your salvation is, is you know, it's this free thing you get, so therefore you don't feel like you need to respond in any way. And I, and I, I think that's true that there'll be a bunch of Christians, as Jesus said, who will say they're doing things in the name of Christ, and he will say, I never knew you. Because it turns out that, 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 that there's a ton of people right now in the country who would identify as Christians, but actually don't believe most of what Jesus talked about, either morally or theologically. So I think there are going to be a lot of people who will not who will call themselves Christians who maybe aren't, don't even know what Christianity is right now. But I, I, am, I recognize that it's going to take two things. It's going to be a knowledge of the truth and then a behavior that reflects that knowledge. But the behavior alone is not going to save you. So it's a both end again. It's not an either or, right? So that's, that's how I see it. I see it as a both end. Really good. So another comment just came in, and I thought this was good. And it kind of piggybacks what Peter said, that the experience is necessary, but uh, too often our faith stops there. More Christians than I can count that I have come in contact with have not read the Bible and don't know, and don't know the Bible. So how important it is that we become critical thinkers that can uh, have engagement with people when it comes to our faith. Yeah, I think this is if you so if you went to go to the doctor for for chemotherapy or for any kind of treatment, and he told you, yes, I I've got a title doctor, and I I, I can I identify myself as a doctor, but I've never actually read any of the texts <laughs> that, that will prepare me to do what I'm supposed mm-hmm. to do with you. I think you're going to say, well, you're just a doctor in name only. I mean, you're not really a doctor because you don't know anything about what it is you purport to know. And I think this is true for anyone who does not actually – like, how, how geeked out are you about the thing that it is you say you are? And this is where I think um, it, we, we have to shift. And, and look, I actually don't think as, – as the number of people who claim to be Christians is shrinking in our country, I'm not convinced that the number of people who truly are Christians is shrinking at all. I think the people who jump out of the identity of, 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 as Christ followers are people who really never knew much about what it was to be a Christ follower to begin with. And so now they just jump back into the culture because it's no longer convenient to be called a Christ follower. It's not like it's – I mean it used to be that you couldn't even run for an office. At least, at least you said you attended church. You said you believed – you'd drop a verse into a speech you know, because you at least had to make a, an appearance to be a Christ follower. I think those days are going. I saw on Drudge Report the other day that one of the leading stories in the very middle is an AP story on uh, Christian nationalism. 
right? And so the idea here is that um, I see that the target that for, for pejoratives is now the, the, the word Christian. Is no, it's like it used to be people would say, I don't think much of Christians, I mean, of, Christian, of Christianity or of Christians, but I like Jesus at least. And, and I think what was, we're, we're actually seeing now that, that the whole Christian uh, teaching of, of Scripture is seen as that Iron Age teaching that is, is the source of all evil in the world, right? It's the source of all misogyny and racism, and, and all those founding fathers who were Christians were all slave owners, and on and on and on. So I don't think it's about the godness of God as much as it's about the goodness of God. Uh, is God good? And this is why I was halfway through writing that book, I realized I needed to think about this in terms of not just making a case for Jesus from the history of Western civilization of of humans since in the last in the, in the common era, but really make a case for why Jesus still matters. Does he still matter? Is he still the source of everything that? Like as an atheist, the stuff that I thought was important was art, literature, music, education, and science. Well, it turns out everything you know about art, music, literature, education, and science is standing on the shoulders of a Christian worldview. As we're talking about these things right now, and so I wanted to write a book where I can show young people especially that the stuff that really matters in your life, even if you're an atheist, you've been sitting in the lap of God the entire time because it turns out these are all grounded and it was, it's the catalyst. Jesus is the catalyst for so much in literature and art and music and education and science that we just take for granted. I don't think we're learning that in our public school system. So I think at some point we have to kind of show that, yeah, it turns out that Jesus is not just God. He's good. And he's the source of everything that matters to each one of us. Jim, is there one thing an individual or a family or a church could do on a weekly basis to to grow this side of their faith, the, the, this more intellectual approach or just a, a critical awareness, anything like that? Well, I, someone asked me this yesterday. A high schooler asked me this. I thought it was really interesting. Like, what can a high schooler asking me what, in a, in a group of 185 high schoolers at Summit Worldview Ministries in, in Manitou Springs, Colorado, and we were there for seven sessions. And, and so these kids are there for two-week worldview training. And a high schooler asked me, what can we do as parents? Okay, these are kids who are still probably 10 years from being, you know, anything close to a parent. Yet they wanted to know what they could do. I think a part of it is because they maybe didn't see this in their own family. And these are really solid Christian families who are sending their kids there. And I always say, well, no, it's just, it's just what are you, like, excited about? I mean, I know people who are so excited about the, the DC or Marvel comic world that when a new movie comes out, they'll talk about it for a month before they go see it. They'll be talking about it for a month afterwards, and it's just it occupies everything that they, they they're so excited about it that they're talking about it all the time, and and I've, I I never run out of things to talk about with my with my boys that are related to, to to the Christian worldview. I mean, there's always something I could be talking about. It's either some attack on Christianity that I saw on on the news or or on in a song or on in a movie or I, or I, I saw a couple of movies recently that were, that were so close to presenting a Christian worldview and then at the last minute pulled the rug out from under him. Well, that provides me with things to talk about. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about them anyway. I'm not like thinking intentionally, like what do I have to do to raise my kids a certain way? I'm just constantly talking about the stuff that I'm geeked out about. And, you know, if you're, like I said before, if you're a fan of a certain team, if you're a Rams fan in a world right now in which the Rams and the Chargers are playing in the same building, well, if you're a Rams fan, at some point, probably your kids are going to end up wearing the jerseys because you're talking about it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. They know who the quarterbacks have always been. You've been talking about the Rams mm -hmm. for 20 years. 
And so they're wearing the jerseys. And I think what it comes down to is, are we talking about this stuff in a way that's contagious? You know, it's really hard to transfer passion if you're not passionate. Mm. And apathy largely is is easier to catch than passion. So I think that, you know, if your kids kind of see that what you spend your time on really has nothing to do with Christianity, well, they'll get distracted themselves. So I, I think it's, a lot of it is, uh, let's just start without being like hyper-legalistic. Let's just start by being excited. Because if you're excited about what it is Jesus does in the world today, um, you're going to talk about it. And that's what's going to be contagious. Mm-hmm. Jay Warner Wallace has been our guest this hour. His book is Person of Interest. You can go to personofinterestbook.com. You can even download a sample chapter if you like. But we have five copies of the book to give away and send to you right into your uh, mailbox. So if you want to get in on that drawing and maybe win one, all you do is text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, text the word book, 877-933-2484. Jim, always uh, great to have you on. Uh, Blessings to you and Susie, and you're now free to go take Bailey for a walk. Thanks to both of you, Pete. And Bill, I appreciate both of you so much. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Yep. Jay Warner Wallace, once again, our guest, personofinterestbook.com, if you'd like to learn more about that. Take a break. When we come back, we've got um, a fascinating hour coming up about the warfare weapons in the Old Testament with Dr. Boyd Severs. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.